Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. Second hour of the show. We have so much to cover in this hour. And just because, uh, you know, I know that uh, Congress just passed the uh, two-something trillion dollar, you know, coronavirus stimulus package. There's a lot of hate going out right now at uh, Congressman Thomas Massey. Well, how dare he grandstand and how dare he, you know, stand up there and tell people that uh, they should do a recorded vote. Meaning that instead of just a voice vote, everybody, yay or nay, every single representative should be on record as to whether they supported this or not. Yeah, he's he's being called everything but a child of God. And look, I don't know. I don't know where you stand on this. Maybe you're one of those who's thinking, well, he's trying to stand in the way of, you know, them saving America and everything. We really need accountability. No, we really need accountability on the part of those individuals in government. Look, I think one of the things that we're forgetting because we're because we're afraid, because we're fearful of what the coronavirus might mean and oh, are we responding quickly enough and decisively enough, we have forgotten that there is a proper role of government. And it's telling that even saying those words is enough to get some people a little bit wound up. Now, I have a friend, he's actually a city councilman in uh, one of the uh, Salt Lake City suburbs who says I hate When people talk about the proper role of government, it just seems so subjective. And, you know, my first reaction is like, well, of course, you're in government. You don't want to see any kind of really meaningful limits on your power. You want some wiggle room. Ambiguity favors your ability to get in there and be a problem solver, right? Because there are some things that legitimately need to be off limits to government, but we forget what those things are. And so I want to share with you a quote from Ezra Taft Benson's The Proper Role of Government. And this is a fairly concise list, 15 principles which make for good and proper government. And this is what he said. He said, as an independent American for constitutional government, I declare that, number one, I believe that no people can maintain freedom unless their political institutions are founded upon faith in God and belief in the existence of moral law. In other words, right and wrong isn't simply a matter of what the Politburo says is right and wrong. Number two, I believe that God has endowed men with certain unalienable rights as set forth in the Declaration of Independence and that no legislature and no majority, however great, may morally limit or destroy these. That the sole function of government is to protect life, liberty and prosper and property rather. And anything more than this is usurpation and oppression. Number three, he said, I believe that the Constitution of the United States was prepared and adopted by men acting under inspiration from Almighty God, that it is a solemn compact between the peoples of the states of this nation, which all officers of government are under duty to obey, that the eternal moral laws expressed therein must be adhered to or individual liberty will perish. And he says, I believe it a violation of the Constitution for government to deprive the individual of either life, liberty, or property except for these purposes. A, punish crime and provide for the administration of justice. B, protect the right and control of private property. C, wage defensive war and provide for the nation's defense. 
D, compel each one who enjoys the protection of government to bear his fair share of the burden of performing the above functions. Number five, he says, I hold that the Constitution denies government the power to take from the individual either his life, liberty or property, except in accordance with moral law, that the same moral law which governs the actions of men when acting alone is also applicable when they act in concert with others, that no citizen or group of citizens has any right to direct their agent, the government, to perform any act which would be evil or offensive to the conscience if that citizen were performing the act himself outside the framework of government. Politicians really don't like that one, by the way. Things don't become moral just because the collective is doing it. Number six, he says, I am hereby resolved that under no circumstances shall the freedoms guaranteed by the Bill of Rights be infringed. In particular, I am opposed to, the, to any attempt on the part of the federal government to deny people their right to bear arms, to worship and pray when and where they choose, or to own and control private property. Number seven, he says, I consider ourselves at war with international communism, which is committed to the destruction of our government, our right of property, and our freedom, that it is treason as defined by the Constitution to give aid and comfort to this implacable energy, a- enemy. rather. Number eight, I am unalterably opposed to socialism, either in whole or in part, and regard it as an unconstitutional usurpation of power and a denial of the right of private property for government to own or operate the means of producing and distributing goods and services in competition with private enterprise or to regiment owners in the legitimate use of private property. Number nine, I maintain that every person who enjoys the protection of his life, liberty, and property should bear his fair share of the cost of government in providing that protection, that the elementary elementary principles of justice set forth in the Constitution demand that all taxes imposed be uniform and that each person's property or income be taxed at the same rate. Number 10, he says, I believe in honest money, the gold and silver coinage of the Constitution, and a circulation medium convertible into such money without loss. I regard it as a flagrant violation of the explicit provisions of the Constitution for the federal government to make it a criminal offense to use gold or silver coin as legal tender or to use irredeemable paper money. Number 11, I believe that each state is sovereign in performing those functions reserved to it by the Constitution, and it is destructive of our federal system and the right of self-government guaranteed under the Constitution for the federal government to regulate or control the states in performing their functions or to engage in performing such functions itself. Number 12, I consider it a violation of the Constitution for the federal government to levy taxes for the support of state or local government, that no state or local government can accept funds from the federal and remain independent in performing its functions, nor can the citizens exercise their rights of self-government under such conditions. Number 13, I deem it a violation of the right of private property guaranteed under the Constitution for the federal government to forcibly deprive the citizens of this nation their property through taxation or otherwise and make it a gift thereof to foreign governments or their citizens. Number 14, I believe that no treaty or agreement with other countries should deprive our citizens of rights guaranteed them by the Constitution. And number 15, Ezra Taft Benson says, I consider it a direct violation of the obligation imposed on it upon it by the Constitution 
for the federal government to dismantle or weaken our military establishment below that point required for the protection of the states against invasion, or to surrender or commit our men, arms, or money to the control of foreign or world organizations of governments. These things I believe to be the proper role of government. And he says, we have strayed far afield. We must return to basic concepts and principles to eternal verities. There is no other way. The storm signals are up. They are clear and ominous. Now, some of this may just sound like, well, it sounds like some speech from the 1960s you pull up. Well, actually, it was given in the 1960s. But it doesn't make it any less true. And especially in light of some of the things that are going on right now, a friend was asking me today, he says, I'm sure you've heard, you know, a talk about, uh, you know, the day will come when the Constitution will hang by a thread. And I'll tell you, I've been paying pretty close attention for that day for at least the last 25 years. I mean, really paying close attention. And there's times when I thought, man, it's hanging by a thread. This is getting really serious. And in retrospect... Yeah, it was nothing compared to what I am seeing today. And it's not just the federal government that is overstepping its bounds. Even state and local governments are taking big, big leaps and and, and accruing to themselves authority that was never delegated to them. All in the name of safety. All in the name of, we've got to protect you. And and so by doing so, we're going to have to take away some of your rights. And one of the key ones, and I know there are those who disagree with this, is the right to peaceably assemble. The part that's so disturbing to me is that so many people seem almost eager to hand these rights over, to surrender them out of fear. And and no doubt, you know, that fear is, is based on, well, there's a virus going around. We don't know who has it. We don't know who doesn't have it. I get that. But if you allow government to take power unto itself that wasn't explicitly delegated to it by the people, which are the source of its power, essentially what you're doing is you're letting government off its leash and you are guaranteeing that a precedent is established that all government has to do any time in the future where it's feeling froggy and needs to flex its authority, it just has to utter the word emergency. We've done this before. Still doesn't make it right. If you can get your hands on, uh, and you can look this up online, so don't tell me I can't get my hands on it. Frederick Bastiat, that which is seen, that which is not seen. For every policy, there's an immediate, easily seen result. It's consideration of the unseen long-term effects that we really need to be thinking about, especially right now. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm sure you have heard people say, look, we are faced with a terrible choice today. We have to choose between saving the economy or saving human lives. Now, interestingly enough, it's usually politicians that are saying this, right? The same ones who, uh, you know, want to make sure that abortion is available at any time, under any circumstances, funded by taxpayer dollars. But boy, when it comes to if we just save one life by shutting down the economy, why that uh, will be worth it. And, and I guess Bill Gates isn't necessarily a politician, but he runs in the right circles. And apparently he, uh, he, too, believes that there's really no middle ground here. It's either this or it's that. 
It's the classic case of being caught on the horns of a dilemma. Barry Brownstein, writing uh, for uh, intellectualtakeout.org, has a very different take on this, and it's one that I really want to, I want you to consider, so I wanted to share this with you. Barry Brownstein says, In the COVID-19 battle, Bill Gates wants us to believe that there is no middle ground between the decision to save lives or save the economy. Gates was adamant, It's very irresponsible for someone to suggest we can, that we can have the best of both worlds. Bring the economy back to money is much more of a reversible thing than bringing people back to life. End quote. Now, Barry Brownstein says Gates' claim that there is no middle ground is immediately falsifiable. Presumably, Gates is buying food or having others purchase food for him. In the supermarket, we are exposed to other shoppers and supermarket staff. In stores and at home, we handle packages that may have the coronavirus on their surfaces. So supermarket cashiers, Walmart cashiers, Costco cashiers meet hundreds of shoppers a day. And if Gates is right... We're allowing them to risk their lives for relatively meager salaries. Some chains have installed sneeze guards to offer some protection to workers. This change is one of the many ways businesses and individuals will continue to find a middle ground and adjust to the coronavirus. Now, clearly, he says Bill Gates believes that some risk is acceptable. If he didn't, we would all wait at home for government workers in hazmat suits to deliver us food. If no risk were acceptable... We would demand that government only allow one car on, car on the road at a time to reduce accidents. When Gates says we have no choice but to listen to him and the experts he promotes, he's appealing to his authority rather than the established science. In a 2003 lecture at California Institute of Technology, Michael Crichton said, consensus is invoked only in situations where the science is not solid enough. That's a great quote. There's no need to convince others the sun is only 90, is 93 million miles away. No one argues about real science. In his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman reports on the work of Paul Slovic. Slovic explains how our politics and other pre-existing preferences shape attitudes towards risk. Now, Slovic's work points toward a startling conclusion. Despite what Gates would like us to believe, there is no such thing as objective risk. 800 leading experts in public health, law, and human rights with experience in previous pandemic responses signed a petition cautioning against draconian lockdowns. We shared this in the last hour of the show. Quote, mandatory quarantine, regional lockdowns, and travel bans have been used to address the risk of COVID-19 in the U.S. and abroad, but they are difficult to implement can undermine public trust, have large societal costs, and importantly, disproportionately affect the most vulnerable segments of our communities, end quote. So Barry Brownstein says these experts, many of whom are professors in medical schools, pointed instead to voluntary self-isolation measures that are more likely to induce cooperation and protect public trust than coercive measures. And he says it's easy for the wealthy to say that there is no middle ground, yet as these medical professionals point out, millions will soon find themselves in desperate times. Government and employers must recognize that low-wage gig economy and non-salaried workers who are unable to work because of quarantine or movement restrictions or other disruptions to the economy and public life face extraordinary challenges. They may find it impossible to meet their basic needs or those of their family. Again, this is from that letter signed by 800 experts. Brownstein says in the rural, co rural college town near my home, students have gone home 
and businesses are open but nearly empty. Family businesses that have existed for generations may fail. Economics professor Don Bordreau admits he is no expert on the coronavirus, yet he is one of the world's leading experts on how markets operate. He writes, Most of what constitutes our prosperity is a flow of finely coordinated activities, each performed by highly specialized workers. In normal times, this flow of activities is largely out of sight. Well, today, because of shortages, consumers are now more aware that goods don't fall manna-like from the heavens onto retailers' shelves. Nor, as Boudreaux writes, are months' worth of inventories lingering in warehouses, idly waiting to be accessed. Instead, every moment of every day, hundreds of millions of specialists, from CEOs to accountants to factory workers to retail clerks, work to ensure that prosperity is continually produced and flowing. Now, Boudreaux is, is clear about the origin of your wealth, my wealth, and Bill Gates' wealth. Quote, ultimately, our wealth consists chiefly in the ongoing willingness and ability of millions of strangers to work for us daily. Any obstacle to large numbers of people performing their daily jobs means hardship for all of us. End quote. Gates, too, would find himself soon impoverished if the unheralded daily creation of wealth grinds to a halt. And Barry Brownstein sums it up by saying the coronavirus consequences Gates points to are terrible. But so are the implications of a wrecked economy. There is a middle ground. Faced with uncertainty, reasonable, well-meaning people can disagree where that, that middle ground is. I like that. I think it's, Barry, you are a, a voice of reason. <laughs> and, and, and not a moment too soon. I think back to the article that I shared from Paul Rosenberg earlier this week. You know, where so many of our politicians are saying, we had no choice. And I mean politicians at every level. We had no choice but to, to kill this thing in order to save it, meaning the economy. But the truth of the matter is, for most of them, they simply saw no other choice. Because the dynamic that moves what they do is that controlling language, that command and control mentality. But there are plenty of other choices. And sometimes it just involves you let people decide how much risk are they willing to assume. Some people will, on their own free will and volition, isolate themselves. They will let their mail sit or their UPS packages sit for several days waiting for the coronavirus to die off. Maybe they'll go and uh, they'll disinfect it with Lysol. Maybe they'll wear gloves, they'll wear, you know, masks, they'll, they'll do everything they can to minimize their risk. And for people who are in a high-risk category, that makes sense. But the idea that everybody has to be subjected to the exact same degree of, you know, of, of risk mitigation is ridiculous. And, and, the, and it follows on the heels of this, this idea that, well, only the government experts really know what's best, and only the government was going to step up and do anything. It's surprising how many people believe that, uh, you know, humanity without government telling us, or experts in government telling us what to do, you know, if we had a brain, we'd be outside playing with it. Because we're really that stupid. Uh, okay. Double my IQ or no money back? Uh, sounds good to me. The truth of the matter is, nobody knows better how to run your life than you do. 
Now, what that means is you and I need good information. We need solid information and not sensationalized overreporting or exaggeration. When we come back to the other side of news here in just a few moments, we're going to talk a little bit about how sensational reporting on COVID-19 estimates has put people into a very fearful state of mind. You know, the, the worst case scenario, it's already happening in their minds. The question is, do the numbers back it up? And the answer that not a lot of people really want to consider is, uh, at this point, no. A lot of that has to do with the sensational way that it's being reported. We'll take a quick break. This is Loving Liberty. Back after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. So about that sensational reporting on COVID-19 estimates. I mean, look, it's attention getting. And trust me, it got my attention. The pucker factor went uh, up considerably when uh, when I heard things like, well, uh, from this article from the American Institute for Economic Research on, on the sensational reporting on COVID-19 estimates. This is from William J. Luther. He says, last week... Media outlets were widely reporting that the Imperial College COVID-19 response team had predicted 20 or I'm sorry, 2.2 million Americans and 510,000 Britons would die from coronavirus. In fact, the authors of the study had described that outcome as unlikely, resulting only if there were no behavioral or policy responses to the pandemic. And as William Luther responded at that time, he said they were all, we were already taking steps to reduce the number of deaths. Well, this week, following testimony by Imperial, College's Lond- Imperial College London's uh, Neil Ferguson before the UK's Parliamentary Select Committee on Science and Technology, now the pendulum has swung the other way. A Washington Examiner headline reads, Imperial College scientist who predicted 500K coronavirus deaths in UK revises to 20K or fewer. On Twitter, former New York Times reporter Alex Berenson, who's quoted in the aforementioned article, goes even further. He claims the remarkable turn from Neil Ferguson is interesting insofar as Ferguson gives the lockdown credit since the lockdown was only implemented two days ago. And the theory is that lockdowns take two weeks or more to work. Interesting. Now, there's actually a neat little video clip here. Uh, This is from Dr. Deborah Burks who is warning the public not to panic when they hear about models and projections of the pandemic spread. Listen to what she has to say. American people, I'm sure many of you saw the recent report out of the UK about them adjusting completely their needs. Um, This is really quite important. If you remember, that was the report that said there would be 500,000 deaths in the UK and 2.2 million deaths in the United States. They've adjusted that number in the UK to 20,000. So half a million to 20,000. We're looking into this in great detail to understand that adjustment. I'm going to say something that's a little bit complicated, um, but I'm going to try to do it in a way that we can all understand it together. In the model, either you have to have a large group of people who are asymptomatic, who have never presented for any test, 
in order to have the kind of numbers that were predicted. To get to 60 million people infected, or of 6 million people infected, you have to have a large group of asymptomatics, because in no country to date have we seen an attack rate over one in a thousand. So either we're only measuring the tip of the iceberg of the symptomatic cases, and underneath it are a large group of people. So we're working very hard to get that antibody test, because that's a good way to figure out who are all these people under here and do they exist. Or we have the transmission completely wrong. So these are the things we're looking at, because the predictions of the models don't match the reality on the ground in either China, South Korea, or Italy. Um, we are about five times the size of Italy. So if we were Italy and you did all those divisions, Italy should have close to 400,000 deaths. They're not close to achieving that. So these are the kinds of things we're trying to understand. Models are models. We're adapting now to the reality. There's enough data now of the real experience with the coronavirus on the ground to really make these predictions much more sound. So when people start talking about 20% of a population getting infected, it's very scary. But we don't have data that matches that based on the experience. And then finally, the situation about ventilators. We were reassured and meeting with our colleagues in New York that there are still ICU beds remaining, and there's still significant over 1,000 or 2,000 ventilators that have not been utilized yet. Please, for the reassurance of people around the world, to wake up this morning and look at people talking about creating DNR situations, do not resuscitate situations for patients. There is no situation in the United States right now that warrants that kind of discussion. You can be thinking about it in a hot... You get the picture. (laughs) You get the picture, but isn't that something... You know, and people's imaginations run away. Well, you know, but this is we're already out of beds. We're out of, you know, personal protective gear and so forth. But what what Dr. Burks is saying here is, look, she says it's our job to collectively assure the American people. It's our job to make sure that uh, that this crisis where there's not enough beds, not enough ventilators doesn't happen. And she says, you can see the cases are concentrated in highly urban areas. And there are other parts of the states that have lots of ventilators and other parts of New York state that don't have any infected. So they can meet the needs by being responsive. This is how she finishes up. She says, there is no model right now, no reality on the ground where we can see that 60 to 70 percent of Americans are going to be infected in the next eight to 12 weeks. And she says, I want to be clear about that. We are adapting to reality on the ground and looking at the models of how they can inform but learning from South Korea and Italy and from Spain, and she says, I know you'll look up my numbers. Pretty powerful stuff. But, you know, what What gets people's eyes on computer websites or on TV newscasts or on newspapers? Those are still a thing, right? It's the sensationalism. And there's a, I'm going to post an article. This is, again, from the AIER about the sensational reporting on COVID-19 estimates. There are a lot of charts that go along with this article, so it's worth your time to click on it. It'll be in the show notes when I put this up for podcast. The thing you've got to remember is, look, the risks of COVID-19 are real. 
And we should take steps to reduce those risks, but we don't need to sacrifice everything out of fear of losing something. And as William J. Luther laments, alas, such sober analysis does not lend itself to the sort of attention-grabbing click pieces that pay the bills for journalists. So his warning is you should continue to expect sensational reporting on the global pandemic, but he also warns discount what you read accordingly. I think that makes good sense. All right. Somebody's been desperately trying to call in this whole time. Here's your chance. 801-331-8113. I will now open up the phone lines if you would like to join the conversation. By the way, I have another article here from uh, Eric Peters that uh, he had put out earlier today. Um, And he's asking this question. And this may seem like a very insensitive and morbid thing to ask. But he says... uh, in, in this case, he says, where are the bodies? Not the uh, elderly, otherwise healthy people stacking up of not elderly, otherwise healthy people stacking up like cordwood. If this is as bad as we're being told, shouldn't we be seeing some kind of evidence of that? All right, let's go to the phone. Caller, welcome to the show. Hi, Raspite here. Hey, long time no see. I was in Walmart and I sniffed and everybody ran away. <laughs> I believe you. I, all I, I was doing, all I was doing, was smelling my deli chicken. Oh wow! No, if you want to feel like a pariah, cough or sneeze in public, and and I imagine that's what lepers used to feel like, you know, in the old days, where they had to yell "unclean" everywhere they went. That's what I do when I enter an elevator, so it clears out, and then it's safe for me to proceed. Wow. I don't know whether to so be a, to admire you or to think, man, that's that's twisted. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I have a, an update for you. Okay. The CDC estimates that from October 1 of 2019 through March 21 of 2020, there have been over 500 hospitalizations and nearly 50,000 deaths caused by, wait for it, influenza. Mm. That's the normal flu, not yeah. corona. So why... Why don't we have an influenza pandemic? Yeah, and it's not like we haven't had them before, right? H1N1, swine flu? Well, this is just normal flu. This is normal influenza that we've been getting all of our lives. That's how many deaths that we've had and hospitalizations, half a million hospitalizations for just the normal flu. How come we're not having a warning and a pandemic and a shutdown of the economy over the normal flu that we've experienced all of our lives? Okay, fair question. Well, it's a fair question because when you compare the total deaths of corona, which is only 1,300 in the entire United States as of, as of, uh, so far, and they've detected 86,000 cases uh, but only 1,300 deaths, they originally thought that corona had a uh, three, you know, three, uh, you know, what they referred to as a 0.034 seven, uh, something of that nature. It was in the threes. It was a three, four, seven or a three, seven, four. Essentially, you know, 3.7% death mortality rate, but you had influenza at a mere 14, uh, 1.4. I got to stop you here because we're, we're up against the break. Rathbite, good to hear from you again. I hope you're doing well. 
We'll take a break. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Look, most days, I got to confess this, I don't know if I'm trying to talk you off the ledge or if it's myself I'm trying to talk off the ledge with some of the things that I'm sharing here. I'm concerned, as I'm sure most people are, but uh, but I'm also trying to maintain a sense of proportion, a sense of perspective, because I am not willing to just wholesale hand over freedoms and say, you know what, these are just getting in the way of my staying alive. And actually, I'm going to share with you in just a few moments an article from the Mises uh, Institute from Per Byland about uh, the benefits that you have in a free society during pandemics. And some people may be praising China for, well, they were so decisive the way they locked things down and trucked people away and, you know, who knows, burned the bodies. I don't know. But uh, there, there are actually some advantages to freedom in times of crisis as well. Even though it's kind of a hard sell. Back to the phone. Caller, welcome to the show. So try to get your head wrapped around these numbers. Originally, when they were not doing detection of corona, they were telling us that they estimated a 0.37 something death rate, comparing it to a 0.14 of influenza. But now that they're doing all of the testing, they revised and said, well, maybe it's more like 0.20 approaching more like that of influenza, and it could be even lower than that. So basically, corona has about the same mortality rate as influenza. Okay, I I want you to cut to the chase for me, though. What does it mean? It means that influenza is about the same as corona. They're not, corona is no more deadly than influenza. I don't know why you don't understand that. Why is that hard for you to comprehend? I'm just giving you this numbers, 2.0. Or 0.20 compared to 0.14, not much different, and it's approaching more that of influenza. So why are we having a panic and shutting down the economy? Or why don't we just include influenza as part of the panic? Now you're not laying that at my feet, are you? I'm telling you, I don't believe in the, any of this. I think this okay. is an extreme exaggeration. Well, you are certainly not alone. I know that there are others who feel that way too. I think that there are some risks particularly in those whose health is already compromised, be it through age or through chronic illness or immunodeficiencies. But there's also some unknowns, and, and I'm willing to concede. Look, I don't have all the answers either. The The thing that, that I guess brings up my greatest suspicion is the fact that uh, this has turned into like a, a the equivalent of a political feeding frenzy for a bunch of uh, the more shark-like members of the political class. Whether it's, you know, throwing around trillions, yes, trillions of dollars of other people's money, or whether it's just, you know, imposing draconian, you know, command and control policies. You will not do this. You cannot do this under penalty of law. It seems like there's an awful lot of opportunism to go along with this. And yet, at the same time, you know, when I see private organizations and look, I'll put my cards on the table. Uh, If it was just government that was pushing this, I'd be like, wow. You guys are as full of it as a Christmas goose. When my church, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, when they started to uh, cancel meetings, to cancel conference, or at least restrict it to we're not going to do it the way we used to, with you know tens of thousands of people meeting in the conference center, when they started bringing missionaries home, 
that gave it a little more gravity to me. And that's not to say that, uh, you know, therefore anything that they say I'm going to believe, but I'm saying if, if they're taking it seriously, I tend to take it a little bit more seriously as well. And by the way, I'm, I know I'm not alone in this because it was, it was like the day after that, uh, that announcement came that, uh, by the way, you know, LDS church members, you're going to be holding church at home. That's when you saw the real, in earnest, runs on the grocery stores, at least here in Utah. Since then, it has just been, well, <laughs> it's been a remarkable experience to sit back and watch. And it really is going to be one for the history books. Per Byland, writing for the Mises Wire, has a few things to say about the benefits of a free society during pandemics. And he says, in this time of crisis, many exclaim how impressed they are by the swift and decisive actions by the Chinese regime. Instead of recognizing the abhorrent disrespect for human life, the Chinese response is put forth as an exemplar for combating a pandemic. And his point here is that these hailers conveniently forget the many weeks of silencing and censorship that preceded the brutal shutting down of the city of Wuhan and the whole Hubei province. They also turn a blind eye to the nature of hierarchy and bureaucracy, pretending what is needed to choose proper action is simply power, and that access to accurate, reliable information is of little concern. So the calls for a strongman solution, he says, are misguided at best, but have been used to paint the picture of freedom as being impotent. As per the strongman delusion, libertarianism would seem to lack exactly what is needed for swiftly and decisively dealing with a pandemic, centralized power. Now, the thing he wants us to remember here is that a free society is not a free-for-all. There's no question that locking or even welding people into their homes should limit the spread of a contagious virus compared with having people moving freely about and spreading the disease. Similarly, stopping air travel should limit the spread as compared to carrying on flying as if nothing happened. But those are, in fact, two extremes, neither of which applies in a libertarian society. The former extreme is based on centralized authoritarian power over people's lives and property, which is rather obviously incompatible with freedom. This is, of course, the strongman critique of freedom, its lack of such power. But the same is also true for the latter extreme, which presumes that any society has significant public property and limitations to the rights of owners of private property. Neither could be the case in a libertarian society. Under private property, you do not automatically have the right to enter someone's store or walk on their sidewalk, just like you don't have a right to enter their home as you see fit. While you are typically welcome to enter a store, the store owner wants you to consider purchasing their goods for sale, your entry is on their terms. As they are in control, they also are responsible for what they allow to happen. That's why even today, private stores and malls, just like private communities, typically have their own security despite the state's police monopoly. They are liable if they welcome anyone without restrictions and thereby subject others to potential harm. This includes welcoming without restrictions carriers of a deadly virus. Now, we saw this oft-overlooked fact in action to a limited extent as airlines suspended flights to affected areas before being grounded by government decree. Why? Well, because they don't want to risk the health of their employees and customers, for which they would be held liable. In a libertarian society, there is no right to use another's property, but also no limitation to the owner's responsibility for what happens with their explicit or implicit approval. Now, this, of course, is not a perfect solution that completely does away with all problems. 
including detaining a virus before it starts to spread. But there are no perfect solutions. The point is that a libertarian society is not like the status quo plus or minus some regulation or government agency. That's something to think about. The libertarian normal is very different from what we have gotten used to under the state. The fact is neither of the extremes assumed by strongman proponents applies in a free society. Yes, it would lack authoritarian power, but it's also not a free-for-all where everyone's wishes somehow trumps property rights. But surely the lack of authoritarian power must mean freedom is impotent in dealing with large threats. No, there is another strongman illusion that doesn't actually follow. It simply isn't the case that centralization is a solution. To instate a central power means adopting a one-size-fits-all approach. But there are more problems of centralization. It makes us more vulnerable, our responses less appropriate. Most of us would agree that a one-size-fits-all approach would in fact be a very good fit, would be a good fit rather for very few, just like a one-size-sweater would be a poor fit on practically everyone wearing it. Conditions are different in different places, which means each place would have to have a different best response. Now, we actually saw this in the coronavirus outbreak where governors adopted different policies for their respective states. And it makes sense for them to do this because the states are very different and were also differently affected by the virus. While far from perfect, this shows that even career politicians recognize that a centralized solution isn't always appropriate. If they truly believed in one size fits all, they would have adopted the same policy, but they didn't because the situations were different. Information about what works and what doesn't and important differences between locales and populations is lost as information is aggregated and statistics are produced to guide centralized decisions. This is Hayek's famous argument about the dispersed tacit knowledge that guides our actions but cannot guide the central planner. The point here is that none of what is appropriate action during an outbreak or pandemic requires central command. The downsides of centralization do, in fact, make matters worse and is what made us vulnerable to begin with. Per Bylance says the many calls for increased centralization and their outright dismissal of libertarianism and freedom as impotent are fundamentally confused. Rather than being reasonable and rational, these outcries are emotional and contrary to fact. They are but symptoms of the strongman ideology. I'll have this posted along with all the other articles referenced in the show notes, which will be on our LovingLiberty.net website. You can get all the podcasts there. By the way, we have a uh, live telephone listen line. You can also access there, LovingLiberty.net. Thanks again for joining us. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 